So speaking of marriage, one of the cool things about marriage is you get to learn about a different family. So my wife's side of the family, her mom, her mom's dad, we referred to him as grandfather. That's the way he wanted to be referred to. So you're trying to get to know like, okay, the grandparents of your wife. And one time I'm sitting here talking to grandfather, he would always refer to me as reverend. Hey, reverend, he's the only one that can do that. Anyone else? I'm like, hey, no, Matt. So he's always like, reverend, reverend. So I said, okay, grandfather, how did you meet Grammy, his wife? So he tells this story. He's stationed in Hawaii near Pearl Harbor, World War II. And he's there with a buddy and they have been set up on a blind date. So they're all dressed up in their uniform and they're waiting on this corner, waiting for the arrival of their blind dates. And up pulls this four-door sedan, pulls up by them, and grandfather, who is not shy, shoves his buddy out of the way, opens the back door, looks in there, looks at both of the ladies, grabs Grammy, pulls her out and says, I'll take her. <laughs> Which we all laughed. And I looked at my three daughters and said, never. Nope, never, right? Now I think about that story. If grandfather had looked in there and instead of choosing Peggy, Grammy, had chosen the other woman, there's no charity, right? How different is my life in that moment? One chance decision would have radically altered my life. Happened 1942. Are you kidding, right? Have you ever thought through that? What if George Washington had not won the Revolutionary War, but had lost and there was no America? How different would things be? Right? There'd be no In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> There'd be no college football. We'd be looking forward to college cricket right now. How terrible would that be? Can't understand it, right? Like, wow, right? The number one most inspirational film on American Film Institute, you know what it's called? It's a Wonderful Life, which is a story of George Bailey. And he thinks his life does not matter. And so the whole It's a Wonderful Life is what would happen if George Bailey never existed, right? And there's all these bad things because he saved his brother from drowning. And then his brother does all these things that radically alter the landscape. He helps build that low-income housing for those low-income people, right? And he, that would have never happened. He saves them from a poisonous prescription drug that would have killed a bunch of kids. And he's like, oh my goodness, right? You guys have seen it. It's, it's heartwarming. It's, wow, your life does matter. Decisions you make do impact the world, right? But even bigger than that, imagine if the cross had never happened. What if there was no cross? What if that never happened in human history? How different does the world look? And here's what I think. I think we're a lot like George Bailey when it comes to the cross. We don't understand the massive, not only historical reverberations of the cross, but also personally what the cross has done for us in our salvation. That we have simplified the cross down to like the forgiveness of sins and the four spiritual laws and that's about it. And maybe some jewelry that we wear around. But it's bigger than that. We don't realize how massive the cross is both historically and personally. 
So what we're gonna do for this week and next week is we're gonna try to get looking at the big picture of scripture and trying to discern what are the personal implications of the cross and then try to apply that to our lives because the Bible says this, without knowledge, my people perish. That there are things that you and I should know and when we know them, we flourish and we grow and when we don't know them, we diminish and disappear. So we're gonna look at the cross in depth for two weeks. We could probably do it longer than that, but we'll just do two weeks. So let's read it, and then we'll start talking about it. So we left off last time I was with you in chapter 15, verse 20. We'll pick it up, the crucifixion, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The cross. I have, as I've studied, 11 different facets that happen for the believer on the cross. We'll try to get through as many as we can the next two weeks. Today, though, I'm just gonna do two because these are two that take a lot to unpack, two that massively influence our life, two that you better know about because if you don't, the enemy gets advantage over you. 
So the first one is a big word, and it's the word propitiation. Perhaps you've heard it before. The way that I translate propitiation, and there is debate on this, is this, no more wrath. So look at some verses about it. First John chapter two, verse two says this. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Remember that when someone sins against you. And then 1 John chapter four, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, no more wrath. So when you back up from that just one step, you have to ask this question, why is God angry? If part of the work of Jesus on our behalf, on the cross, is so that there's no more wrath, why is God angry? So pagans at this time would say this. They would say the gods got angry at you for some reason. You had done something to a god, and they're usually capricious. So now that they are mad at you, you had to appease the anger of the gods by some kind of a blood sacrifice. And then that God wouldn't punish you by destroying your crops or killing your kids, right? So that was the pagan way of looking at propitiation. Is that the same way with God? Well, it would take an hour just to start to look at the wrath of God. I don't have time for that. So I just wanna go big picture for a second and think about from God's perspective what he sees. So if you go back and look at the whole story of scripture, it begins with God making this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden. And each day after God creates, what does he say? It's good. I'm creating a good creation. At the end of it, he says, it is very good. Tov, tov. This place is awesome. And then he gives this really good spot to two image bearers named Adam and Eve. Take it. Eat of all the trees of the garden, except be careful of this one tree. It's poisonous. It will kill you, right? And so God says, don't eat of that tree. And what happens in the story? The one tree, of the thousands they could eat, the one tree they're not supposed to eat from, they eat from it. And something happens to the very fabric of the universe. It gets crushed and broken so that from that day forward, DNA decomposes. Relationships are difficult. So what happened in that moment is Adam and Eve get given this beautiful garden and they trash the joint. And so they get expelled from it east of Eden, right? Now, have you ever had somebody trash your good creation? Something you love, something you've given yourself to. Have you ever had somebody destroy it? How does that make you feel? It happened to me. So I love Volkswagen buses. I drove mine, I finally got the starter fixed. It's actually starting, it's like brand new life with it. 
I don't have to push it out of the gas station every time. I can actually start the key. I'm like, this is amazing. This is how cars are supposed to work. So I love Volkswagens. It's not my first Volkswagen. About 20 years ago, I bought one. And that one, I restored myself. This one, I gave to a guy who was much better than me. He said, hey, fix the dents and paint it. The one that I had before, I did all the work myself. Blood, sweat, tears poured into that 1965 Volkswagen bus. Had it for about a year. I was driving it to work. Worked as an engineer at that point. It was the day after Easter. Beautiful, brilliant day. I'm driving along coming off of Rogue River Highway down to where Redwood Highway and Rogue River Highway come together at the 7th Street Bridge. It's about seven in the morning. I'm cruising along at 35 miles per hour because that's as fast as they go. So I'm cruising along where there's this guy in this Volvo station wagon who's in the left lane. And for some reason, he's going like 10 miles per hour. I don't think anything about it. I just keep going. Well, right when I'm up near him, he decides he's gonna turn across my lane and pull into that, you know, like Novus windshield repair place. He's gonna pull right in there, but does not see me. So he pulls into the side of my van, goes down the entire side of my van, just big giant crease down my van, hits the bumper, tears it off, slingshots me up over the curb onto the grass. And I'm sitting there full of wrath. But I'm like, it was Easter yesterday. I better be a good Christian here. I better say something nice to this guy like, hey, we're all sinners. Praise God for his grace, <laughs> right? So if you know a Volkswagen, they have these little slider windows, but they only open like that wide. So I kind of slide the window open because he's getting out of his, his missile of death to walk over to me. So he's walking over and I'm trying to rehearse like, yeah, be nice, don't get mad, it's okay. And he comes over, but it doesn't go down that way. He looks at me and goes, you're driving pretty fast, weren't you, kid? I was like, what? I'm not gonna be a Christian now. I'm going to be a Grants Pass caveman. That's what I'm going to be. And so I try to open my door, but the only problem is it's sealed shut because the frame on my van was actually bent. Nothing worked on it. He must have seen the change in my demeanor and he just left. I was mad though. Why? He ruined my creation. God has these image bearers. He puts in a really, really good creation and then they trash the joint. If you know the rest of scripture, what happens is this. There are these men that come, they're called prophets. And what these men say over and over is this. You guys... You should be Sadiqah and Mizpah. If you've been with us any time, you know those Hebrew words. It means righteousness and justice. It's you need to be righteous in the way that you deal with me, your creator. And you need to be just in the way that you deal with other people, helping especially the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan. But what the prophets say is, you're not those two things. In fact, you're the opposite. You're idolatrous. Instead of having a right relationship with me, you keep elevating everything else above me. You're idolatrous and you're unjust. You take from the poor. You steal from the widow. You oppress the orphan. You are creation wreckers is what the prophets say over and over and over again. And so God is angry at our creation wrecking ways. And you gotta back up as you read the prophets, which is really important, and say, 
am I a creation wrecker? Not you killed that Japanese maple, which is God's creation. God's not so concerned with that. It's more, am I a creation wrecker when it comes to the pinnacle of God's creation? So when God creation says it's good, it's good, it's good, he takes a time out, right? He says, hold on a second. And there's a conversation that we hear in heaven and he says, let us make man in our image. At the pinnacle of creation is humans, right? We are God's Volkswagen bus, the top, the best, right? So God says, hey, you're the best. Have you hurt other humans? Have you been unjust toward them? Have you gossiped about other humans? Have you been mad at them and allowed that anger to start to get into your heart so that when you speak about that person, you're speaking things that are slanderous and untrue? Have you taken from God's daughters that which does not belong to you? Have we been creation wreckers? All of us would say, yes. Have you ever thought back about things that you did when you were in high school or in the seventh grade? How you treated people or mistreated them? And has it kept you awake at night? Because you can't undo that. That's wreckage you cannot change. I have. How I treated this kid named Craig in the seventh grade. And I thought, as a dad now, as a dad, if my son was treated how I treated Craig, how would I feel? I'd be angry because it was unjust. That's, that's what happened with us. We're all creation records. So here's what propitiation is. There's no more wrath. That on the cross, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father to forgive us of our creation-wrecking, pig-pen, gossiping, slandering, selfish, greedy ways. And then here's what happens. Romans chapter five, verse one says this. If you know Romans, there's this buildup. And this is what it says in conclusion. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the place of wrath, because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ, in the place of wrath, guess what you and I have now? Peace. How amazing is that? It means this. If you've been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, if you have put your faith in King Jesus, if you have done that, God's not mad at you. Do you know that? How amazing is that? I know I'm a creation wrecker. I know I deserve wrath, but I don't get it. I get peace instead. John 3.36 puts it like this. Those that believe in the Son are given life. Those that do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on them still. They have not been justified. They have not had propitiation happen for them. There's still wrath for them. So here's where the rubber meets the road in propitiation. It means this, when you hit a bump in the road, when things go bad, when things are hard, our tendency, like pagans, is to be like, oh, God's mad at me. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is that true? No, because there's no more wrath. Every unjust, unrighteous act that I've done that should get God's wrath 
has been propitiated for, and God is not mad at me. How brilliant is that? That you can always run to him because he is not mad at you because you have been justified by faith. How good is that? It frees me from the lies of the enemy that wants to drive me away from my father. And I get to return to him every time because he's not mad at me. That's jewel number one of the cross. You have peace with your father. There is no more wrath. Brilliant. Number two, redemption. Here's a great, great scripture. We could mine this all day if we wanted to. It's Titus chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. That phrase right there has been debated for 400 years. It's divided the church in half. What does it mean, salvation for all people? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, What trains you? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. What trains you? God's grace. You never leave God's grace. God's grace trains us to what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is God? Right there, (laughs) right? The Greek is super clear. Those are both looking at Jesus Christ. He is our God and our Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us. Redemption. What does redemption mean? I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Make a great song if someone's thinking about it. So what does it mean? We say the word. If you've been in church, the idea of redemption is often tagged to a Greek slave market where there would be tons and tons of slaves there available for anyone to come and to pay the price for them to purchase them out of that slave market. Is that what redemption means for the believer? If that's true, who does God pay to redeem us? Who does the cash payment go to? Who are we enslaved to? Who do we belong to, right? You gotta start asking some of those questions. Well, the Bible does give us hints in some of that direction. Look at these verses. John chapter eight, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, if you see that or verily, verily in the Bible, pay attention. It's Jesus saying, make sure you don't miss this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Anyone in here ever practice sin? Yeah. All of us, day one, mine, feed me now, right? All that matters is me. I don't care, mom, that you're tired and you just went through labor. Feed me now, right? We are born practicing sin, right? So, verse two. 
It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Who's your daddy? The devil, right? That's what Jesus says to human beings here. You belong to the devil. 1 John 3.10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There's two kinds of kids in this world. There's kids of God, and the Bible makes it real clear. There are kids of the devil. And the last one, there's two kinds of kingdoms, Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Do you know that there is a dark domain that lives in this world? Some of you have experienced it. You know the power of that dark domain. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So who have we been redeemed from? So before you and I believed in Jesus Christ, when we are practicing sin, we are in the domain of darkness, our father was the devil, right? That's what it's saying. So does God have to pay off the devil to redeem us from his kingdom? Like a Greek slave market. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, and you've seen the lion and the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan is killed to appease the white witch because of the sins of Edmund, that's what C.S. Lewis is actually getting at there. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, but this is not Narnia. My cats don't talk to me. If they do, they're going on TikTok, and I'm gonna be a billionaire, right? So I don't agree with that. I don't actually agree with that way of reasoning from the scripture that you look back in order to find out what the New Testament authors were doing is you look how that Greek word was used by maybe Aristotle and Plato hundreds of years before. You look at how contemporaries were using that same word and you look at how maybe writers in 100 years, like what's the trajectory of this term? That's how you figure out what this redemption word means. I have a whole different way of looking at the Bible. I think the lexicon of the authors of the New Testament was the Old Testament. And if you wanna find out what a word means in the New Testament, I don't go to Greek culture. I go to the Old Testament. And I look for where has this idea been used before that this is one unified story from Revelation to Malachi. It's telling the same thing. Giving us detail and interesting facts about it, but it's one story. So is there a story in the Old Testament that talks about an enslaved people to some kind of megalomaniac ruler who God then sets free and redeems? Is there a story like that in the Old Testament? Yeah, right? The book of Exodus. If you want to know about redemption, I don't go to the Greek culture. I go to the book of Exodus. This is what God says. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
and I'll deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's what I believe. That Pharaoh, this wicked, women-enslaving, child-killing, men-beating, megalomaniac, who is oppressing worse and worse God's people, killing babies, right? That God says, no more, I'm redeeming you. No more, I'm getting you out of this abuse. And God says this, it's in Exodus seven, verse five. He goes, I'm gonna do miracles and I'm gonna do signs to show all the Egyptians that I alone am God. And it culminates in the Passover lamb being slain, the blood being put over the door, death passing over all believers, and then them leaving Egypt, plundering Egypt, and leaving the kingdom of darkness, literally a dark land, and coming into the promised land. Does that sound at all like Jesus? That he comes doing miracles. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for over a year. Forgiving sins right out of the door, chapter two. Only God can do that, right. Demonstrating that he's God. The story culminates in what? Him being our Passover lamb dying so that death would pass over us so we could leave the kingdom of darkness and be transferred into the kingdom of light. This is the story, right? Now, did God pay Pharaoh? No, God plundered Pharaoh, right? So that's where you had to get this stuff right. So the New Testament like picks up all these threads and starts to put it together and says, listen, you've been redeemed. Colossians chapter one, you've been redeemed from dark powers. It's brilliant. Galatians 3.13, you've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Romans chapter six, the whole chapter, you've been redeemed from your sinful, broken flesh. In Romans 6.14 and 15, you've been redeemed from death into life. So here's how redemption works for us. Here's how you apply it to your life. When you believe in Jesus, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness. You're adopted into Jesus's family. The kingdom of darkness, its grip on you is gone. You leave it. You're not in Egypt anymore, right? You walk out of it. And the only power Pharaoh has over you, the only power the devil has over you, the only power is this, deceit. He yells at you across the Red Sea. That's all he's got. And that's why when you read the epistles, especially the late epistles, 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. What you see is this, look out for deceit. Look out for the lies of the enemy. He wants to act like he's still over you. He wants to act like he's still got you. That's what he does. Do you know that? But you don't live in his domain anymore. It's interesting to me when you look at the first two sinners, Adam and Eve. When God comes to them after they've sinned, what does God say to them? He says, who told you you were naked? Who put that on you? Who's telling you that? Because just a moment ago, you were naked and unashamed. You're having the time of your life. Now all of a sudden you're ashamed and you're hiding and you're running from me. Who told you that you were naked? Who's deceiving you? Who's lying to you? 
And as Christians, we've got to identify. We have an enemy now. His one tool is lies. That's it. Because he knows we're not under his thumb anymore. He knows we're not in his kingdom anymore. And he's got one thing, lies. And he comes at men and women differently, I think. He comes to men. And men, because we know what we lost in Adam. We know we're supposed to be kingly and rule and conquer and dominate. And we know that we do not. We know that there's more to us. And so the enemy comes to us when we fail. And this is what he says. He says, you're an incompetent fool. You're always gonna struggle. You're always gonna be broken. You're an incompetent fool. And it cuts us. To women, he does something very different though. If you look at what happens with women, it's all out relationship with husband and love, isn't it? Read the curse. And so women, it's, they wanna be loved. So the enemy comes and says, because you did that, because you blew it, because you lost your virginity, because you had an abortion, because whatever mistake you made, you will never be loved. And it cuts us. But we have to remember, those are lies. I've been redeemed. It takes no faith to believe the lies of the enemy. Do you know that? It takes faith to say, no way, Satan. I don't belong to your kingdom anymore. I am an adopted child of King Jesus. I am a queen. I am a king in training. You are a liar, and that is not who I am. That's what faith is about. I have been redeemed. That's redemption. That's how you appropriate this stuff. We've been redeemed, Romans 6, from our sinful flesh. Every one of us knows we're broken, right? We know we have these propensities in us. Don't we? To be lazy, to be greedy, to slander, to talk when we shouldn't talk. Right? You name it. We can all just fill it in. Like we all know we have, ugh, some are addicted to drugs and alcohol, to pornography. And so what the enemy says is this, you're always going to be that way. You will always be my slave. I will always have you here. And if you believe him, you're done. But you gotta say, no way. I'm not your slave anymore. That I wake up tomorrow morning and my father says this to me, my mercies are brand new for you this morning. Great is my faithfulness. That throughout the day, as the enemy wants to tempt me and come at me with his lies, I say, no way, that's not who I am. I was baptized May 21st, 1992, and the old Matt Heverly died in those waters, and a brand new Matt Heverly was resurrected, and that's who I am today. That's what you say. I've been redeemed, brought through the Red Sea into the promised land, and I don't listen to your lies anymore. That's the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know these things? Do you know that God is not mad at you? When you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no more wrath for you, propitiation. Do you know that you have been redeemed? You are no longer under the thumb of the Pharaoh called Satan. You are no longer enslaved to your flesh, Romans 6 but you have been redeemed. I pray that you know these things. The waters are ready for baptism. (laughs) Hey, I got my cue, turn on. So as we take communion, 
Maybe you came in here today thinking that God was mad at you. If you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, there is no more wrath. God is not punishing you. Jesus, as we partake, I pray for every believer in here that we would have that peace, that shalom, that rightness with you that has been bought for us by the cross. Let's eat together. Maybe you've come in here not realizing the power of redemption. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness, from Egypt, from enslavery to Pharaoh, to the kingdom of the sun. And you need to keep putting your faith in that and quit believing the lies of the enemy. And so Jesus, as we drink, may we drink of the cup of this new kingdom that you have brought us into, that we have been redeemed. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. May we drink that and believe that and appropriate that every hour of our lives. Strengthen us as we drink. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one more song. After that song, you can be dismissed or up front, there'll be people that would love to pray for you. If you came in burdened and the enemy loves to burden us, that's, that's his goal. Let's get you weary and broken down. The Bible says, cast that all on him. He is your burden bearer. That somehow where two or more are gathered, agreeing in prayer, there's power. Come be prayed for. And then we offer baptism. Chad right over there. If today's your day to be baptized, I can't explain it, but I was saved and then I got baptized. And there was a peace that passed all understanding that came into my heart in that moment. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. Why didn't it happen when I got saved? It probably did. But something happens in baptism where you decide he's not just my savior, he is my king. And I'm gonna be following him as my king. That somehow in those waters, I knew everything old was passed away and I came up and I knew I'm brand new. Something died, if you would, in that day. It was washed away. And maybe today is your day where you say, I wanna do that. Or maybe you're not saved. Either way, talk with Chad. Get saved, get baptized. We don't have a process to it because the book of Acts doesn't because both of them are a gift from God's grace that we simply receive. So if today's your day, we'd love to join with you in that. Would you stand for this final song?